Well, good morning, everyone. This weekend in the Western calendar is the weekend that we traditionally celebrate what we know of as Palm Sunday. It is the weekend where we celebrate the coming King, that the King is coming, that, he, that He's going to come and rescue us. And so we here celebrate that the King has come and has come to rescue us, and that is what we step into this weekend. We thought here at Mosaic that this year there would be no more wondrous way to celebrate and to remember the fact that the King has come than to step into the incredible sacrament of communion. Here at Mosaic Church, as you may know, we have communion available every single week in the back at the tables for those who choose to worship through communion uh, on a weekly basis. But then we also, on a semi-frequent basis, kind of take a step out of whatever series we're in, whatever journey we're on uh, through the Scriptures, and we stop to reflect on the incredible uh, sacrament of communion, what it means, why it's here, what its power is, what its purpose is, what its beauty is. And, And that's exactly what we're going to do this weekend, is to stop and to step deep deeply into the sacrament of communion and really unpack and discover and explore the wonder of communion. Now, I will tell you, communion at face value seems pretty simple, right? I mean, you've got the juice or the wine and you've got the bread. Uh, You've got the Last Supper involved. You've got Jesus saying, remember me. And, And so in many ways, it's a fairly simple sacrament in terms of how it works and what it does. But I will tell you, though we have entered into communion, if you've been on a spiritual journey for any long period of time, perhaps hundreds and hundreds of times, I will never assume that we have come to the end of its depth and its beauty and its power and its purpose. There is always more to discover than we ever thought possible in the things that God has given us. And so as I entered into this week preparing to unpack the reality of the sacrament of communion, I started just saying to God, what is it that I have yet not discovered? What is it we do not yet know of the beauty and wonder and power and purpose of communion? Would you show me something that will bring fresh vision to this this incredible sacrament. And then, as God tends to do, it happened, right? I love when particular stories unfold before me and God goes, pay attention. This is the one you asked for. So as many of you know, my wife and I have the incredible privilege of parenting eight children, right? So we have four children that are biological, four adopted, and Three years ago, those two worlds collided with one another, and, uh, and we had the, the two sibling groups come together in one home, and the beginning journey of incorporating two worlds, two cultures, two parenting realities, uh, two languages all into one space to become one family and live out the story of God. And that is exactly what it sounds like it'll be, a collision of epic, horrid proportions, right? So, and, and, and you know, uh, because sermons would be born out of me like the dark rises, or where is the Spirit when you need Him, or, you know, uh, I mean, these were the kinds of things that my wife and I were wrestling through for months through this, uh, seeing the brokenness and reality of this world colliding in our home. And, and that whole time, through all the mud and mire, what you're holding on to, what you're hoping, what you're trusting, what you're believing, is that in this mud, the seeds that are yet unseen are germinating and will produce beauty in time. I've shared with you in messages that I I drive down Highway 27 uh, back in the months earlier, and I would be shouting in my car, you better make this good, right? Shouting at God like, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, this better, I mean, this is wow, right? 
And then so as you wait and you watch for that fruit to be born, when it comes, man, when it comes, it is an extraordinary thing to see. So this week, my wife was out of town for a couple of days and uh, went uh, to some time in Colorado for just some interaction with God and spent some time with a friend there. And, and uh, so I, I was with the kids, and one afternoon I was getting ready to uh, get dinner ready, and uh, Fitzsimti, my 15-year-old daughter, uh, comes into the kitchen and she says, Dad, can I talk to you? And I go, sure, honey, I'm just right here. Go ahead and talk. She goes, no, 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 I need to talk to you outside. And that's, that's big, right? I mean, when your 15-year-old daughter comes and says, I need to talk to you outside, you're like, well, what have I done, right? And so uh, she comes and I go, okay, just give me a minute. I finish up. We go out into the garage, and I'm standing in the garage for, garage for a minute, and, and this is what she says to me. She says, Dad, would you um, call the principal of my school? So that's an interesting way to start a sentence, right? She goes to family Christian school in Winter Garden, and it's an it's a awesome little private school, but it's big enough that there's a, a bunch of kids there and small enough that you kind of know everybody. And, and um, right, she goes, would you call the principal of my school and would you ask her if I could speak to all the students, if I could speak to the whole school? This is my 15-year-old daughter, Fitzsimti, and language is almost perfect for her now, but she still feels the insecurity of uh, the broken English that's, that she's working through. And, and so I look at her, and I'm thinking to myself, I mean, have you ever had that happen? Your teenage 15-year-old coming, like, I, I need to speak to the whole school. Can you talk to the principal? So I look at her, and I go, Fitzsimti, why do you want to speak to the whole school? I mean, she's not, public speaking is not on her top list, right? And she looks at me, unapologetically, immediately, and she says to me, oh, no, 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 I don't want to speak to the school. I'm very scared, but I must speak to the school because there is something I need to tell them, and I've tried to push it away, and I've tried to ignore it, but I cannot sleep at night, she says to me. I cannot sleep at night. It is in me, and I must tell them. I'm standing in my garage, and I'm watching the creator and sustainer of the universe speak to my 15-year-old daughter and tell her deep and, and important things that she must tell others, and I'm like, is this really happening? This is incredible. So I say to her, do you know what's happening? I mean, God is speaking to you. And when God tells you something that deep that you need to tell others, then you need to do it. I will absolutely call your principal. And she says to me, what if she says no? And I said, honey, I'm calling her. She will not say no. <laughs> that's, that's not going to happen. So it's gonna, don't, don't worry. We'll get you speaking to the school. So I said to her, listen, why don't you go write this down? Because dad's not good at a lot of things, but this particular thing I'm pretty good at. And so I can help you uh, to say what you want to say in a, in a way that it's going to come across. So you go write it down. So she writes it down and works on it. And she brings it to me. Here, here's what she wrote down, right? I mean, in, in so many words, she starts her little speech and she says, have any of you ever left this country? That's how she starts. She says, I have. And then she goes into this incredible description of how important it is that we are grateful for what we have because we have things we cannot imagine. And if you've never left this country, you don't even know how good you have it, she says. She st and then she tells a story of when she was little and she was in the orphanage in, in Oxum and she would leave with some of her friends and go to the churches in Oxum and there'd be all these people around the churches at the fences without limbs and legs and lame and blind and they would be begging, but nobody was there to help them. 
And she talks in this little message about how she has learned about God in extraordinary ways. And even learning about God here is something so different than there. And how, how grateful we must be for what we have. And she's compelled to tell them, be grateful. You have no idea what you have. I do. And this is her little speech. And I'm reading this and I'm like, wow. See, what compels a 15-year-old teenage girl with broken English in a world where she should be feeling insecure to step up and say, I must speak to my school when she is really a quiet person in the background, not the front kind of, I'm going to do this. What compels her? I'll tell you what compels her. She remembers. She remembers. She remembers the life she came from, what she saw there, what she knew there, what she observed there, and she sees the life she is in now, and the difference between the one she was part of and the one she is part of has emerged in clarity for her, and in the clarity of the difference between the one she had and the one she has, that clarity has birthed in her a gratitude for what God is doing in her life. We have seen the fruit of that gratitude even in our home, the relational dynamics between her and and. Brooke and I are just expanding beautifully, and her, her attitude, her, 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 her demeanor, everything is just shaped over the last few months in extraordinary ways, and now I know why. Because she is coming awake to what she remembers and seeing what she has, and she's going, wow! And then out of that gratitude as she observes the rest of the world and what they do not yet know, she's compelled to go and tell them. Does that sound familiar? This is the gospel story. This is how the gospel works, right? You and I are traveling through life like every other human being. We are, as Solomon would put it, chasing after the wind. Why? Because at a certain point in our human history, humanity was created by God in the person of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden for extraordinary purposes. We were created to have an intimate relationship with God with no obstacle, knowing fully His love and, and His protection and His authority and His, His destiny for us and, 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 and engaging with Him in absolute intimacy. All we would know the rest of our existence would be life and light and freedom. And we were created not only to know Him, but to make Him known, to image Him, to, to make His story known, His glory known, His, His kingdom known through our lives and our words, which we would do effortlessly because we were intimate with Him. And the enemy came to us, and he told us that God was tricking us, that His authority was, was actually holding us back. And the reason God didn't want us to eat of the fruit that would give us the knowledge that God has is because He knew that if we ate of it, we would know what He knows. And if we knew what He knew, then we could become like Him, writing our own story, creating our own destiny, and glorying our, ourselves. And so He said, man, pursue divinity. Don't, don't, don't live under His authority. And we bought into that insanity. We ate of the fruit pursuing our divinity, and guess what we discovered? We didn't discover divinity, we discovered death, just like God said we would. Death came with sin, and death came with bondage, and, 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 and it came with, with, with darkness, and it, and it came with brokenness, and it came with all sorts of things we were wholly unfamiliar with, and, and it came with something else. Inside of us, the Scripture says we were enslaved to that sin that was now in us, that desire to pursue our divinity and yet to get what we need to be rescued. And so we became human beings that pursued the idols of our heart, 
to give us divine-like ability and to pursue the passions of our flesh to give us the, the opportunity to be whatever we wanted and to get whatever we wanted so that our needs would be met. And that's what, what we were enslaved to, you and I. We live our lives in different cultural contexts, chasing after that which would fulfill us and that which would make us king, boss, whatever you want to call it. And then, if you know Jesus, you know that you collided with the revelation of God, the good news of Jesus that we call the gospel, the good news that God, though he should have abandoned us, didn't. He, from the second we ate the fruit and walked out of his story, he began to author, had already been authoring the story of our redemption. He was the redeemer. To redeem means to buy back something that has been lost. And so instead of abandoning, which is to let something go that is lost, uh, redeeming is to buy back what was lost at whatever price necessary. And so from Genesis onward, God begins to author a story through the people of Israel to show us that he is in fact writing the human story into a redemptive end. And that is culminated at the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, God is in the flesh, to come and live, to die, and to rise from the dead, to rescue our soul, to redeem our future, and to restore our God-created purpose, to make Him known instead of ourselves. And when you collide with that gospel, when you see that news, and you first begin to see the life you were living, uh, enslaved by the passions of your flesh and the idols of your heart and the life He has now rescued you into, uh, called into and invited into this extraordinary life, uh, living in the freedom and light and life of God, when we first encounter that, it is incredible. And it changes everything. It changes the way we see the world and relationships and resources and circumstances. It changes the way we experience things. It's, it's as though you can see for the first time. And, and so birthed in us is great gratitude. And you see this often. And then this compelling reality to want to go shout it to the whole world. And then what happens? What happens to every one of us, right? Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday, Right? an irritating spouse, a crazy child, a, a tough relationship at work with someone trying to steal your job, uh, a paycheck that is less than the bills that are also on the table, uh, college educations coming down the pike, things you have to do, the culture that says to you, if you don't consume enough, you're not significant enough to us, so consume more. And if you don't produce enough, what good are you? So produce more. And so we are driven and driven day in and day out by these realities. And before you know it, in the hustle and bustle of our lives, that beautiful re re revelation that we received starts diminishing, the memory of it fading. Yes, we know we're saved. Yes, we know we're going to heaven. Yes, we know He loves us no matter what. And so we are secure in that beautiful recognition that no matter what, I get to be with God because Jesus died. But that becomes this distant hope for some future reality. When I die, then I will be with God. For now, I got to survive Tuesday. And then in that, we begin to forget. We begin to forget the gospel and where we were and we begin to be enticed back into the same idols and passions of the flesh that used to enslave us. They don't get to enslave us anymore, but we give ourselves over to them. We go, and, and, and we, we walk back in, and, and they become big to us, and, and we begin to feel the things we used to feel, things that were so wrong but now sort of feel right again because we're slowly forgetting. And then, as we forget, 
one day we find ourselves looking around and going, I essentially live my life the same way I did before I knew the gospel. Yes, I still have Jesus, and yes, he still saved my soul, but at the end of the day, I'm playing in the same sandbox, not because I'm enslaved here, but because this is where I found myself, because I've forgotten. This is every one of your story and mine, and this is what Jesus knew would happen. Jesus knew this was coming. He knew this is how he functioned, and so he did something extraordinary. Uh, the very end of his life on planet earth, in fact, the very last night before he was going to go and suffer and be crucified and die to redeem our, our stories and to rise from the dead, he gathered the boys in a room to tell them some important things. And the most important thing he wanted to tell them in that room was something that has become one of the greatest gifts we have to this day in our journey with intimacy with God. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of Luke Luke chapter 22, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, that's going to be on page 573, 573, uh, Luke chapter 22. If you're using a smart device or your own Bible, go to Luke 22. In Luke chapter 22, it says in verse 7, these words, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. So there's a meal that's about to happen. Jesus tells them to prepare it. They don't know this is his last night. He does. They go and prepare the meal. Jump to 14. Here's what it says. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I love that sentence. Do you see what Jesus is telling them? Guys, you have no idea how long I have waited for this meal. I have earnestly desired to be sitting at this table with you as though Jesus knew what was coming and knew what had to be done. And of course, we know he did. And so here he says, all this time, brothers, you have no idea how I've longed to sit at this table with you at this meal because at this meal, some things are going to be given you that are going to become critical in your journey on, onward from here, right? It is at this meal that he again tells them about his suffering and death and that he's going to have to leave them. And so he's preparing them for what life will look like in intimacy with him without his physical presence with them. Take a look what he says. And he says this, verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. So they divide the cup. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood remember this moment, he says. Here Jesus sits at a meal and he calls the guys into a regular rhythm of remembering what they have not yet seen happen. They are about to see what we know, but he's saying, when you see what's about to happen, I want you never to forget what you're about to see. So I'm going to give you a space in a regular part of your life that is going to be a space to remember all the time what I have done for you. 
I love that Jesus takes a space you and I have to be in all the time and creates it a space of remembering, the space of eating. Eating is the single greatest obsession of the human race, is it not? I mean, you'd say breathing is, but you don't think about that because that just happens. Eating, on the other hand, doesn't just happen, does it? It doesn't just morph into you while you're walking around like breathing. You actually have to go, oh, I'm hungry, and then you eat. And so on a daily basis, you and I uh, feel the need to want to eat. And you say, I don't eat every day. I fast sometimes. I'm like, yeah, but while you're fasting, all you think about is food. And so uh, the reality is either you're thinking about it or or you're actually consuming it, right? Those are your two states of mind. And so uh, food is a part of every part of who we are in every day. And Jesus sits at a meal and he says, every time you gather together uh, to come around this table, I want you to remember what you are about to see. But Jesus does far more than tying this moment of remembrance to a simple meal like you and I might have every day. He also ties it to this particular meal because this particular meal has massive significance in the annual calendar of the people of Israel. It's called the Passover meal, which actually leads us back into history to something extraordinary. God knew from Genesis, the early parts of the human story, that we had the propensity to forget. He knew that already then. Jesus didn't just come up with us now. He's known all along that we forget all the time. And we see this in the story of Israel. So God sets up for the people of Israel an annual rhythm of remembrance through feasts and festivals. Of the most famous is the Feast of Passover. Passover was a meal once a year to remember the great rescue of God from the people of Egypt when the people of God were enslaved there. It was the one of the most supernatural rescues of God pulling his people out of slavery into the land of promise. And so this becomes an annual event that says, never forget that I rescued you from Egypt and brought you into the promised land. Why? Because it is the opposite story of what the enemy told us in the garden, right? When God rescues you and when you do what God says and you follow God's path, it leads to the land of freedom. And when you don't, it leads to the land of death and destruction, right? And so he's like, I need you to remember that because you'll see it in Israel is a beautiful example of each and every one of us, right? Oh my gosh, they're in bondage. It's terrible. Their lives are a mess. They run to God. Help us. And then God comes and rescues them. And then God sets up an annual rhythm of of altars and, and feasts and festivals never to forget. And as long as they they remember who all is well, and then they forget. Monday comes and Wednesday and Friday, and then suddenly they're like, Ooh, and then they chase after their idols again, and they're the passion of their flesh. And before you know it, where are they? Back in bondage, back in death, back in stuff, and then they're like, help! And then God comes and rescues them again, and He sets it up. So, what do we learn? Our most vulnerable space after we have been set free by the gospel is the space in which we forget. When you forget, when I forget, that is when we are at our most vulnerable to the idols that once ruled our hearts that have no place anymore and the passions of the flesh that once enslaved us but do not any longer. We are most vulnerable to give ourselves to those things once again when we forget what God has done for us. And so Jesus sets up this remembrance and God sets up a remembrance throughout time and not just an annual remembrance. You see, God was going, no, no, you guys forget on a, on a weekly basis, 
right? So you got the annual rhythm of the feasts and festivals to remember the great works of God. Uh, 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 altars set up everywhere to remember what God has done in sp- uh, specific geographical locations as you walk around your, your land, your house, whatever. And then God even bothered to say this. You guys are going to need to remember on a weekly basis because one week is enough for you to kind of start forgetting, right? So in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments are laid out, right? I mean, the, the, the big boys, right? I mean, you got uh, death and murder and they don't, don't kill people. That's important. Don't kill just in case you didn't know, that's very important, right? Uh, don't steal stuff from people. That's, that's not good either. There's a couple of other big ones on there, right? And then in the middle of those, hey, on the seventh day of each week, stop everything and just focus on me. Don't kill someone, Sabbath. Yeah. I mean, you just kind of go, I got it. I won't kill people, but I'm going to skip Sabbath sometimes, right? And as I've said before, the reason God said Sabbath matters as much as murder is because when you forget the Sabbath, you might start murdering people. Because when we forget God, maybe, maybe not that far, but it's going to feel that way. <laughs> Certainly your words will, right? So here's the deal. When we forget God and the gospel and what he's done for us, we forget ourselves. And when we forget ourselves, we start acting crazy back in our passions of the flesh and our idols. So God says, no, you must remember every week me. Come together to enjoy me, to focus on me, to enjoy each other in a gospel context. Remember, because when you forget, you are at your most vulnerable. This is not a command to try to, to, try to restrict you. It is a gift to try to keep you free. And so he sets up a weekly rhythm, but he doesn't stop there. Oh, no, God goes, no, you know what? Weeks are, are good, but seven days you could forget. So we're going to go day. We're going to go daily rhythm, right? I mean, think of Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is speaking to the people and telling them what? Who he is to them, right? The gospel. Here it is. He says this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I have commanded you today, you shall write on your hearts. Okay, there it is. Now watch what he says. He's not done. He says this. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign to your hand and they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts and on your house and on your gates. Do you see what God's doing? Let's see where you might forget. The morning. Okay, we got the morning covered. The lunchtime. Got that covered. More evening time when you lay down. When you walk outside the house. Got that. Inside the house, we're on it. Gate. Gate, we got a doorpost. Forehead. Hand. Everywhere. Put it everywhere. Why? Why is God so insane about this? Because God knows when you and I forget, we are at our most vulnerable to the idols of our hearts and the passions of our flesh. And God wants you free, doesn't want you bound. And so he's going to bring into your spaces all the time into mind. Remember, remember, remember. And what Jesus does at the Last Supper is masterfully and wondrously, he pulls into one space both the big annual rhythm of the Passover to say from now on, when you remember the big rescue of God from Egypt, I mean, from Egypt out, uh, that was but a shadow of what I am about to do. That was the, the foreshadowing of the great rescue of humanity. I rescued a nation, now I'm rescuing the human story. So now when you remember that, it is not only that, but it is more so me. So he ties it to the big picture remembrance. Remember that God has been rescuing us from the very beginning and continues to rescue us today. But he also ties it to the daily rhythm. 
says, whenever you do this around a table now, remember me. We know this because we get into Acts chapter 2 and the early church gathers on a daily basis in their homes, right? And what does it say? Does it say on an annual basis, the early church got together to remember Christ in communion? No. No, it says daily they gathered in their homes and broke bread together. See, what happened is Jesus took an annual remembrance of the great rescue, turned it into a daily meal experience, and said, whenever you gather, remember me now. And communion became an integral part of that daily space of eating and being together. And that was its intent, its heart. The beauty of communion, the gift of communion, is for us never to forget so that we are always safe. Because when we remember what God has done for us and is doing for us and will do for us, and we remember who we once were and who we can be when we forget, the gap between the two births in us awe and gratitude, which causes us to live differently, which compels us to share the good news. Does that sound like Fitzsimpty's story? The recognition of the gap between two spaces births in her gratitude and awe that she behaves differently, and then compelled to tell others. This is what communion is for. So as we step into our space, communion was never meant to simply be something that once in a while we together get together just to celebrate. In fact, Paul later on writes to the church in Corinth, and he adds to communion the heart of every feast and festival, the heart of every remembrance. He adds instruction to it to say, listen, when you come, this is not simply something you do just to say you remembered. Check, remembered. What's supposed to happen in the remembering is that there's supposed to be an encounter there that allows things to change in you. You don't just remember the gospel you have the gospel remembrance inform the way you think, the way you live, the way you talk, right? So Paul says, when you come, make sure you don't just come and remember, make sure you come and reflect, that you are actually actively remembering and reflecting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes instructions on the reality of communion, and this is what he says. He says this, he's talking about communion in the context of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17, and here's what was happening in the church of Corinth, right? So communion was experienced around the meal after synagogue, so you'd have synagogue and then you'd go for the meal and that's where you'd break bread. So the guys in Corinth, they were hungry after synagogue, so they would rush through the doors to get to the table first to grab the biggest piece of bread and the, and the, 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 you know, the glass of wine that's just a little higher than the others so they could quench their thirst and eat their stuff, and then they'd call that remembering and Paul is mad, right? It's like, you guys are crazy. You're coming to the table that is designed to remember Jesus, and you're making it a table to fill your bellies. You're coming to the table in an unworthy manner. And he goes so far as to say, and that's why some of you have fallen asleep early, which means dying. That's pretty harsh, right? You guys come to the table, grab a bunch of food to stuff it down your throats to fill your bellies, and you call that, I'm remembering. Some of you are dead. You should think this through, right? I mean, that's a big deal. So Paul is trying to say, listen, when you come to this table, there's only one way to come to this table in a manner worthy of the great gift this table is, and that is to come to remember Jesus. Not to come and show off or to come and prove anything, not to come here because, because you, others need to see, to come here to remember Jesus. And then to come and reflect here at this table. Look what he says in verse uh, 28. Let a person examine himself then, And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, some have interpreted that to say, before you come to the table, examine yourself and make sure there's nothing in you that's not good. And if there is, fix it, then you can come to the table. So I remember growing up, a lot of times in that space, we're like, man, until everything's right, don't come to this table. That's unworthy. But that is a complete miss, in my opinion, of the context of this passage. What Paul is trying to do here is to make sure we understand you don't just come to this table to remember you come to this table to be examined, to be informed, to be shaped and changed and transformed. It is not us transforming ourselves into goodness so we can remember Jesus. It's remembering Jesus that transforms us into wonder and goodness. And so we must come to the table to remember, to reflect, to be transformed. And trust Him to do it in us because we are not capable of transforming ourselves, let alone anybody else. And so the table is Paul saying, when you come, come and remember. And then when you remember, do what Fitzsimti did. Think on it. Be in awe of it. And then allow that remembrance to inform your heart and shape the way you live. Let it remind you that the idols are death, that the passions of the flesh are death. And when you find yourself captivated by those, see it. Don't be ashamed. Look at it and go, yep, I am but I'm here again at the table. I'm here again with Jesus. I'm here again to remember. And every time I do this, they fade. He expands. I'm more free. Do you see now how often do you want to come to this table? All the time, right? Like I'm scared. Morning, evening, lunchtime, bring. It's this beautiful space where you're like, I just never want to forget, never, ever, ever want to forget. So Paul instructs us as a community when we come together at this table to do it that way. You've heard me say this many times before. If you want to live a devoted life to Jesus on mission for the kingdom of God, you need to preach the gospel to who? To yourself. To yourself first, always. Every day, preach the gospel to yourself Preach it to yourself. I'm rescued. I'm restored. I'm redeemed. This is amazing. I'm, I'm captivated by things, and yet God's love is greater than that. He keeps calling me back into freedom, even when I run into my stuff. Wow. Then, who do you preach the gospel to next? Not the world. To each other. Because I need you to preach the gospel to me. I'm going to forget to preach it to myself. You need to preach it to me, and I'm going to preach it to you. So together in community, we preach it to each other. And this is the gift of communion, a space to preach the gospel to yourself, a space to preach the gospel to each other before we are compelled to go and preach it to the world. So what have we done? God has given us the meal. The heart of communion is to remember. So what I started doing a few months ago, I started thinking to myself, If communion, the heart of communion, the heart of the sacrament is to remember, how can I integrate that into my daily rhythm? So here's what I did. Uh, The meals, you know when you have a meal, usually three to four to six times a day, somewhere in there, right? Depending on who you are. Um, you, You come and you give thanks. So I used to do the whole thing. You know, God, thanks for the meal. They bless the food to my body. Make me strong so I can be on mission for you. Woo! And it's not bad. That's great. That's awesome. I'm thankful and that's awesome. But then it dawned on me. This meal is a gift from Jesus to remember Him. It's not the sacrament of communion, but the heart of communion is right here, right? And so instead of just thanking God for the meal, what am I thanking God for here? 
that this meal is a shadow, a representation, a remembrance of the great provision He's given me. Yeah, this is bread, good for my body, but here's the deal. God has provided for me a soul rescue, a future redeemed, a purpose restored. That's the great rescue. Jesus even said, you don't need bread, you need me. So I'm like, yes, remind me, God, as I eat this meal, that this is a shadow of your great provision. I don't need this meal nearly as much as I need your rescue. In fact, I don't even need this meal if I have your rescue. Because if I die here today because I have not eaten, I will only enter into freedom more greatly. And so every Thanksgiving becomes a heart of communion where you preach the gospel to who? To yourself. And then, then I started realizing if we're going to gather up on a semi-regular basis here in the, in the gathering space, where do we see the sacrament of communion really take hold of our hearts regularly? Are you in a missional community? Well, let your missional community begin the habit of breaking bread together at every missional community. Just in the beginning, the middle, or the end, just say, hey guys, let's just gather up and preach the gospel to each other by remembering through the sacrament of communion the wonder of what Jesus did. Do you have family meals together? Or if you're living with a roommate or some roommates, do you gather once a week or a couple times a week to eat a meal together? Side note, if you are a family here or you with a tight biblical community in a roommate situation and you are not gathering at least once a week for a meal, that's very dangerous. Just side note, you ought to be gathering for a meal regularly as a family. And if you're doing that, have you ever thought to take that meal and once a week gather your children or gather your friends and say, hey, Jesus gave us an incredible gift. It's called communion. We get, to, we get to remember what He's done. And why do we remember? Because when we forget, we are vulnerable to the things that call us into places we no longer belong, places that will trap our hearts and souls again. So let's gather together. And can you imagine your little five-year-old sitting there and you're explaining this and then, okay, now, now we're going to remember Jesus. This is what we do. And your children grow up weekly experiencing what communion was meant to be. And then when we gather together in a gathering like this in, in some kind of a regular, frequent manner every uh, eight, ten weeks, whatever it is, and we gather together, that's just part of the regular rhythm here for us. Then you've got daily and you've got weekly and you've got gathering spaces doing it, and suddenly we remember. We're preaching to ourselves. We're preaching to each other. We are compelled to preach to the world. When we are grateful for what God has done because we remember and we are aware of what our lives were like and would be like and are like without God, and we remember, then that produces awe and gratitude, which produces freedom, which compels us to tell others and live in front of others the realities of the gospel. This is your gift, and it's mine. And communion is given to us so that we will never forget. Who would not want to come to that table? to come and remember Christ. Let's pray. God, we stand before this sacrament that we will now enjoy together and we are in awe of the gift that it is to our souls to come and to remember what you have done for us, what you are doing for us and what you will do for us, that you rescued us once and for all, that you are rescuing us every day and that you will yet rescue us until we stand before you. That this gospel is not a single encounter reality, but it is the ongoing, sanctifying beauty that we experience as you work in us through our ups and downs, through our successes and failures, 
that every time, God, we are drawn back to the idols and passions of the flesh and find ourselves trapped in the darkness, that you are ever-present there, that your gospel is already at work, has always been, and that you are already rescuing. God, when we come to this table, we do not come clean. We do not come perfect. We do not come ready. We just come to remember. And we ask you that as we come, that the remembering would become the reflection and the meditation of our hearts that would begin to invite us back to the spaces where we live for you and not for ourselves. That which is in us that is still dark, difficult, that is still binding and enticing, may this table become the space that in part begins to remind us that you have already finished our story and it's already beautiful. So we should just live waiting and discovering that, trusting you to transform. May this table become a beautiful and free space for us as we remember you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.